Section forty three of La Sommoire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alex Foster. La Sommoire by Emile Zola. Translated by Ernest A. Visitelli. Fifth part of chapter nine. As Gervaise listened to him, she drew back, afraid he would grab her and take her away in the box. She remembered the time before when he had told her he knew of women who would thank him to come and get them. Well, she wasn't ready yet, mon Dieu. The thought sent chills down her spine. Her life may have been bitter, but she wasn't ready to give it up yet. No, she would starve for years first. He's abominably drunk, murmured she, with an air of disgust mingled with dread. They at least oughtn't to send us tipplers. We pay dear enough. Then he became insolent and jeered. See here, little woman, it's only put off until another time. I'm entirely at your service, remember. You've only got to make me a sign. I'm the lady's consoler, and don't spit on old Bazouge, because he's held in his arms finer ones than you, who let themselves be tucked in without a murmur, very pleased to continue their bye-bye in the dark. Hold your tongue, old Bazouge, said Lawyer severely, having hastened to the spot on hearing the noise. Such jokes are highly improper. If we complained about you, you could get the sack. Come, be off, as you've no respect for principles. Bazouge moved away, but one could hear him stuttering as he dragged along the pavement. Well, what? Principles? There's no such thing as principles. There's no such thing as principles. There's only common decency. At length, ten o'clock struck. The hearse was late. There were already several people in the shop, friends and neighbours. Monsieur Madinier, My Boots, Madame Gaudron, Mademoiselle Romanjou, and every minute a man's or a woman's head was thrust out of the gaping opening of the door between the closed shutters to see if that creeping hearse was in sight. The family, all together in the back room, was shaking hands. Short pauses occurred, interrupted by rapid whisperings, a tiresome and feverish waiting with sudden rushes of skirts. Madame Lorieux, who had forgotten her handkerchief, or else Madame Lerat, who was trying to borrow a prayer-book. Everyone, on arriving, beheld the open coffin in the centre of the little room before the bed, and in spite of oneself each stood covertly studying it, calculating that plump mother Coupeau would never fit into it. They all looked at each other with this thought in their eyes, though without communicating it. But there was a slight pushing at the front door. Monsieur Madinier, extending his arm, came and said in a low, grave voice, Here they are. It was not the hearse, though. Four helpers entered hastily in single file with their red faces, their hands all lumpy like persons in the habit of moving heavy things, and their rusty black clothes worn and frayed from constant rubbing against coffins. Old Bazouge walked first, very drunk and very proper. As soon as he was at work he found his equilibrium. They did not utter a word, but slightly bowed their heads, already weighing Mother Coupeau with a glance. When they did not dawdle, the poor old woman was packed in in the time one takes to sneeze. A young fellow with a squint, the smallest of the men, poured the bran into the coffin and spread it out. The tall and thin one spread the winding-sheet over the bran, then two at the feet and two at the head, all four took hold of the body and lifted it. Mother Coupeau was in the box, but it was a tight fit. She touched on every side. The undertaker's helpers were now standing up and waiting. The little one with the squint took the coffin lid, by way of inviting the family to bid their last farewell, while Bazouge had filled his mouth with nails and was holding the hammer in readiness. Then Coupeau, his two sisters and Gervaise threw themselves on their knees and kissed the mamma who was going away, weeping bitterly, 
the hot tears falling and streaming down the stiff face now cold as ice. There was a prolonged sound of sobbing. The lid was placed on, and old Bazouge knocked the nails in with the style of a packer, two blows for each, and they none of them could hear any longer their own weeping in that din, which resembled the noise of furniture being repaired. It was over. The time for starting had arrived. "'What a fuss to make at such a time,' said Madame Laurier to her husband, as she caught sight of the hearse before the door. The hearse was creating quite a revolution in the neighbourhood. The tripe-seller called to the grocer's man, the little clockmaker came out on the pavement, the neighbours leant out of their windows, and all these people talked about the scallop with its white cotton fringe. Ah, the coupeaus would have done better to have paid their debts. But, as the lawyers said, when one is proud it shows itself everywhere, and in spite of everything. It's shameful, Gervaise was saying at the same moment, speaking of the chainmaker and his wife, to think that those skinflints have not even brought a bunch of violets for their mother. The lawyer, true enough, had come empty-handed. Madame Lerat had given a wreath of artificial flowers, and a wreath of immortelles and a bouquet bought by the coupeaux were also placed on the coffin. The undertaker's helpers had to give a mighty heave to lift the coffin and carry it to the hearse. It was some time before the procession was formed. Coupeau and Laurier, in frock-coats and with their hats in their hands, were chief mourners. The first, in his emotion, which two glasses of white wine early in the morning had helped to sustain, clung to his brother-in-law's arm, with no strength in his legs and a violent headache. Then followed the other men, Monsieur Madinier, very grave and all in black, My Boots, wearing a great coat over his blouse, Bosch, whose yellow trousers produced the effect of a petard, Lantier, Goudron, Bibi the Smoker, Poisson, and others. The ladies came next. In the first row, Madame Laurier, dragging the deceased skirt which she had altered, Madame Lerat, hiding under a shawl her hastily got-up mourning, a gown with lilac trimmings, and following them Virginie, Madame Gaudron, Madame Fauconnier, Mademoiselle Romanjou, and the rest. When the hearse started and slowly descended the Rue de la Goutte d'Or, amidst signs of the cross and heads bared, the four helpers took the lead, two in front, the two others on the right and left. Gervaise had remained behind to close the shop. She left Nana with Madame Boche, and ran to rejoin the procession, whilst the child, firmly held by the concierge under the porch, watched with a deeply interested gaze her grandmother disappear at the end of the street in that beautiful carriage. At the moment when Gervaise caught up with the procession, Gouget arrived from another direction. He nodded to her so sympathetically that she was reminded of how unhappy she was, and began to cry again as Gouget took his place with the men. The ceremony at the church was soon got through. The mass dragged a little, though, because the priest was very old. My Boots and Bibi the Smoker preferred to remain outside on account of the collection. Monsieur Madinier studied the priests all the while and communicated his observations to Lantier. These jokers, though so glib with their Latin, did not even know a word of what they were saying. They buried a person just in the same way that they would have baptized or married him without the least feeling in their heart. Happily, the cemetery was not far off, the little cemetery of La Chapelle, a bit of a garden which opened onto the Rue Marcadet. The procession arrived disbanded with stampings of feet and everyone talking of his own affairs. The hard earth resounded, and many would have liked to have moved about to keep themselves warm. 
The gaping hole beside which the coffin was laid was already frozen over, and looked white and stony like a plaster quarry, and the followers, grouped round little heaps of gravel, did not find it pleasant standing in such piercing cold whilst looking at a hole likewise bored them. At length a priest in a surplice came out of a little cottage. He shivered, and one could see his steaming breath at each de profundis that he uttered. At the final sign of the cross he bolted off, without the least desire to go through the service again. The sexton took his shovel, but on account of the frost he was only able to detach large lumps of earth which beat a fine tune down below, a regular bombardment of the coffin, an enfilade of artillery sufficient to make one think the wood was splitting. One may be a cynic. Nevertheless, that sort of music soon upsets one's stomach. The weeping recommenced. They moved off. They even got outside, but they still heard the detonations. My boots, blowing on his fingers, uttered an observation aloud. Tonnerre de Dieu! Poor Mother Coupeau won't feel very warm. Ladies and gentlemen, said the zinc worker to the few friends who remained in the street with the family, will you permit us to offer you some refreshments? He led the way to a wine shop in the Rue Marcadet, the arrival at the cemetery. Gervaise, remaining outside, called Gouget, who was moving off again after nodding to her. Why didn't he accept a glass of wine? He was in a hurry. He was going back to the workshop. And they looked at each other without speaking. I must ask your pardon for troubling you about the sixty francs, at length murmured the laundress. I was half crazy. I, I, I thought of you. Oh, don't mention it. You're fully forgiven, interrupted the blacksmith. And you know I am quite at your service if any misfortune should overtake you. But don't say anything to Mamma, because she has her ideas, and I don't wish to cause her annoyance. She gazed at him. He seemed to her such a good man, and sad-looking, and so handsome. She was on the verge of accepting his former proposal to go away with him and find happiness together somewhere else. Then an evil thought came to her. It was the idea of borrowing the six months back rent from him. She trembled, and resumed in a caressing tone of voice, "'We're still friends, aren't we?' He shook his head as he answered, "'Yes, we'll always be friends. It's just that, you know, all is over between us.' And he went off with long strides, leading Gervaise bewildered, listening to his last words, which rang in her ears with the clang of a big bell. On entering the wine-shop, all she seemed to hear was a hollow voice within her which said, "'All is over, well.' All is over. There is nothing more for me to do if all is over. Sitting down, she swallowed a mouthful of bread and cheese, and emptied a glassful of wine which she found before her. The wine-shop was a single, long room with a low ceiling, occupied by two large tables on which loaves of bread, large chunks of brie cheese, and bottles of wine were set out. They ate informally without a tablecloth. Near the stove at the back the undertaker's helpers were finishing their lunch. "'Mon Dieu!' exclaimed Monsieur Madinier. "'We each have our time. "'The old folks make room for the young ones. "'Your lodging will seem very empty to you now when you go home.' "'Oh, my brother is going to give notice,' said Madame Laurier very quickly. "'That shop's ruined.' "'They had been working upon Coupeau. "'Everyone was urging him to give up the lease. "'Madame Laurat herself, who had been on very good terms with Lantier and Virginie for some time past, "'and who was tickled with the idea that they were a trifle smitten with each other,' talked of bankruptcy and prison, putting on the most terrified airs, and suddenly the zinc-worker, already overdosed with liquor, 
flew into a passion, his emotion turned to fury. "'Listen,' cried he, poking his nose in his wife's face, "'I intend that you shall listen to me. Your confounded head will always have its own way, but this time I intend to have mine, I warn you.' "'Ah, well,' said Lantier, "'one never yet brought her to reason by fair words. It wants a mallet to drive it into her head.' For a time they both went on at her. Meanwhile the brie was quickly disappearing, and the wine-bottles were pouring like fountains. Gervaise began to weaken under this persistent pounding. She answered nothing, but hurried herself, her mouth ever full, as though she had been very hungry. When they got tired, she gently raised her head and said, "'That's enough, isn't it? I don't care a straw for the shop. I want no more of it. Do you understand? It can go to the deuce. All is over.' Then they ordered some more bread and cheese and talked business. The Poissons took the rest of the lease, and agreed to be answerable for the two-quarters rent overdue. Bosch, moreover, pompously agreed to the arrangement in the landlord's name. He even then and there let a lodging to the Coupeaus, the vacant one on the sixth floor, in the same passage as the lawyer's apartment. As for Lantier, well, he would like to keep his room if it did not inconvenience the Poissons. The policeman bowed. It did not inconvenience him at all. Friends always get on together, in spite of any difference in their political ideas. And Lantier, without mixing himself up in any more in the matter, like a man who has at length settled his little business, helped himself to an enormous slice of bread and cheese. He leant back in his chair and ate devoutly, his blood tingling beneath his skin, his whole body burning with a sly joy, and he blinked his eyes to peep first at Gervaise and then at Virginie. "'Hi, old Bazouge,' called Coupeau. "'Come and have a drink. "'We're not proud. "'We're all workers.' The four undertaker's helpers who had started to leave came back to raise glasses with the group. They thought that the lady had weighed quite a bit, and they had certainly earned a glass of wine. Old Bazouge gazed steadily at Gervaise without staying a word. It made her feel uneasy, though, and she got up and left the men, who were beginning to show signs of being drunk. Coupeau began to sob again, saying he was feeling very sad. That evening, when Gervaise found herself at home again, she remained in a stupefied state on a chair. It seemed to her that the rooms were immense and deserted. Really, it would be a good riddance. But it was certainly not only Mother Coupeau that she had left at the bottom of the hole in the little garden of the Rue Macadé. She missed too many things, most likely a part of her life and her shop, and her pride of being an employer, and other feelings besides which she had buried on that day. Yes, the walls were bare, and her heart also. It was a complete clear-out, a tumble into the pit, and she felt too tired. She would pick herself up again later on if she could. At ten o'clock, when undressing, Nana cried and stamped. She wanted to sleep in Mother Coupeau's bed, her mother tried to frighten her, but the child was too precocious. Corpses only filled her with a great curiosity, so that, for the sake of peace, she was allowed to lie down in Mother Coupeau's place. She liked big beds, the chit. She spread herself out and rolled about. She slept uncommonly well that night in the warm and pleasant feather bed. End of chapter 9 Recorded by Alex Foster in May 2009 in Nottingham, England www.alexfoster.me.uk